Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Novel. A listener note, this episode contains violence and content that some listeners might find distressing. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. Herbal thought that if he got rid of Joel, he could just move in and take leadership with Joel's people. Well, it didn't work. That's the problem. He told me about a group of polygamists that were in town to kill someone. Let's start with her raid on the Los Molinos on December 26, 1974, and the events that led up to that. The Sullivan began jumping and nervous, wanting to know, what, what are we doing here? Nothing's happening. I understand that you're affiliated with the Church of the Lamb of God, is that correct? I have been affiliated with what was called the Church of the Lamb of God, yes. I guess you wouldn't know how they got Becky to get into the car in the first place with him. And he just turned to me and said, Either you marry Earl today, or this is your last chance, you will go to hell. They felt that they were putting somebody out of the misery. The Lord wants this done. Man upstairs says we just got to get rid of Berlin. It's just and ruin the people and lead them astray. We ended up behind the doctor's office. The vehicles were waiting there. The guys handed us our guns and gave us encouraging words and sent us on our way. Murray City Police tonight say they have no lead yet on who the two women were who entered the office of polygamous leader Rulin Allred yesterday and shot him dead. Where did you shoot him? Chest and head. 
I guess. I don't know. I am to the gun. How did you feel when you pulled the trigger? And she said glibly, if you want to know that, you'll have to read the book. Honestly, it was like losing him all over again. Close your eyes and imagine you're in a cave, chained. All you can see is a blank wall. There's a fire burning outside the cave. And from time to time, you can see shadows passing in front of the fire, flickering shadows. You and the other people in the cave give names to these shadows. They form your perception of reality. They are your reality. Then one day, suddenly, you break free, leave the cave, see the fire outside making its projections. But the fire hurts your eyes. And even if someone were to tell you the fire is projecting the objects onto the cave wall, you wouldn't believe it. So you run back into the cave to the comfort of your reality. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, you probably know this story. It's Plato's allegory of the cave, a fundamental understanding that in some sense applies to all of us. Whether we are religious or not, the understanding that our reality is formed by our perceptions. As a journalist who often writes about faith, Plato's cave comes to mind a lot, especially when I talk to people who have left fundamentalist religions, because they often grew up removed from the world at large, grew up in a religion that taught the world outside is dangerous, to be mistrusted. There was always just a sense of fear, always so much fear. This is one of those conversations with Gabriella, who was raised in a fundamentalist Mormon cult. Um, I was about five years old, four or five years old, terrified of the outside world. I'm playing this because Gabriella's previous feelings about the world outside of her cult are indicative of many people who leave fundamentalist religions. When she first saw the fire outside the cave, she didn't want to face it. Like most people, she ran back inside the cave. Um, I, was not, I wasn't going along with that at all. Why not? Because I honestly believed in it, and I... The truth was too painful to face. And so I prayed, and I asked God to show me what to do. And I remember, I was like, look, God, I'm here. I don't know what to do. You're not telling me what to do. I'm ready. I was so ready. We never got answers, okay? So this is the problem (laughs) with us. In Plato's allegory, that prisoner breaks free, then returns to the cave. But then someone, some mystery person, drags them back outside for a second time. It takes a minute, but their eyes do eventually adjust to the light, and they can begin to see things as they are. I was really asking myself, if God is real, if what we were believing is real, then why didn't all of these miracles that are supposed to happen, how come none of them ever happened? They realize the outside world is better than the cave. 
They've chained themselves to a wall for most of their life in this tightly controlled space when there was so much more to see, to experience, that the reality in the cave was a distortion. It was like your idea of reality is clashing with actual reality. I was like, okay, in that case, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Of course, not all stories take the same course. Not all fundamentalists have the same experience breaking free. But in Plato's allegory, the person goes back to the cave a third time. This time to try to convince people to come with them, to share in what they've seen. But nobody listens. In their minds, the person venturing outside the cave has been blinded by looking at the fire. They are now a danger. And in Plato's allegory, the cave dwellers decide to kill them. If you're not religious, you may think this all doesn't apply to you. But this isn't just about former fundamentalists like Gabriella, because most of us are tribal in some way. And if we leave that tribe, be it our family, community, even a political affiliation, maybe it's hardwired into us, we know it's risky. It goes back to our earliest ancestors. You leave the tribe, you're dead. Maybe your old tribe sees you as a threat and tries to eliminate you. You betrayed them. After all, if I told you that your reality was a lie, you'd push back, right? By 1977, police were closing in on Ervil and his followers. But so far, the Church of the Lamb of God had stayed one step ahead. As far as tribes go, they seemed united, loyal. This mafia-style clan with an unbreakable code. They knew the cost of speaking up, of leaving the tribe. It was death. But light was starting to stream into the cave. A few had ventured outside enough to wonder if the shadows they were seeing on the wall were real or the mad ravings of a psychotic prophet. Ervil must have known that if any of them broke free long enough to see the outside world, they would leave, reject that tight, cloistered, suffocating existence he'd created of stomach-rumbling poverty and sadistic murder of their own kin the whole thing would collapse. But the thing about Plato's allegory is, to fulfill it, someone from Ervil's group needed to be the first to break free. And they did. Like Judas when he gave away Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is Deliver Us from Herbal. I'm Jesse Hyde. Chapter 6 The Betrayal. Of all the murders carried out by Ervil and his followers in the years up to 1977, perhaps the hardest to stomach is the killing of his daughter Rebecca. Maybe killing his own brother Joel should have indicated nothing was off limits. Yet, 
The killing of Rebecca LeBaron in April of 1977, who was three months pregnant at the time, showed just how far his followers were willing to go. But Rebecca's murder has another significance. Her death was the catalyst for an insider to betray Ervil. Rebecca LeBaron was the seventh child of Delfina Salido LeBaron, Ervil's first wife. He married her back in 1950. Rebecca's killing in April 77 was kind of an open secret in the cult. But no one told her mother Delfina. That is, until June of 77, when a child in the cult let it slip. The secret was out. Delfina flipped, initially just figuratively, raging against the members of the cult. But this instinctive reaction now put Delfina's life at risk. Because the same cult members who saw Rebecca as a loose cannon now saw Delfina as a threat and someone who had to be silenced too. Delfina must have realized this because not long after her outburst of grief and rage, she tried to flee to Mexico to escape the cult. And while this was all happening, word of Delfina's flight from Ervil's cult had reached the cops. She called her sister in San Diego, and that sister called Dick Forbes. This is Larive Stubbs, whose family helped settle Colonial Baron back in episode one. Ever since Ervil's followers had killed her prophet, Joel LeBaron, she and her husband had been leading the resistance to Ervil's cult. She dedicated every spare minute trying to track him down and bring him to justice. And so now, hearing Delfina was leaving the cult, it was Larive down in Colonial LeBaron that the detective Dick Forbes called to help bring Delfina in, hoping she could be persuaded by Larive to testify against the cult. Delfina, which was Herbal's wife, Dick Forbes told us that he needed to take her to Salt Lake. And what would it take? And but hearing all this, Larive's concern was for Delfina. She knew her life was now in danger from Herbal's assassins. They were already on the plane to go get rid of her because they didn't want her talking. They thought she would, there was a potential she would get killed before she could testify, is that it? Of course. Okay. You think they weren't after her yeah. the minute she left? Dick Forbes told Larive they needed to act fast. Delfina was on a bus traveling through Texas en route to Mexico. The bus was going to be making a stop in the border city of El Paso. It's about 200 miles from Colonial Baron a four-hour drive on a good day. Could Larive get there before Ervil's killers? And he says, she's gonna be there at three o'clock in the morning. And I had to get up in my house down here, drive to El Paso and be in that bus stop at three o'clock. And the law was on its way to that El Paso bus stop too. So we're the ones that met her in El Paso and it was clear full of FBI and CIA and whatever, you get it? So they all converged just in time. And we interceded, picked her up, had guys there from Salt Lake. That night at three o'clock in the morning, they flew in. Next morning, she says, well, I'll go if Larry will go with me. So there I was stuck for three weeks. And I was pretty upset because I had little kids and I needed to be home. 
but I went. Lareve put her life in Mexico on hold and traveled up to Utah. Because for her, stopping Herbal had become a single-minded mission to stop the killing. We did go after him with the law. And we worked with Mormon FBI, CIA, um, <laughs> and with everybody. Oh, I just want you to know we did it day and night. Day and night. When Lareve talks about Mormon law enforcement agencies, she's referring to Dick Forbes and other officials. Not only were they from Mormon backgrounds, but they had taken to heart the advice of journalist Dale Van Atta. Remember, it was Dale back in episode four who had told police to learn and respect the intricacies of Mormon doctrine. And that had allowed police to build trust. I little by little trusted all those guys because I watched them and I watched them work. Did law enforcement rely on you guys for information? For everything. Because they had all the records on the barons. You know, but they didn't know the difference of those who were against Herbal and those who were for him. So you would hear tips and then you would let them know? We didn't hear tips. We helped them everything they needed. And we knew all the families. This was a big thing for Larive, agreeing to work with cops. Think about it from her position. As one of those refugees in Mexico, leaving the U.S. as a teen because the cops were rounding up and arresting polygamists, she'd been told never to trust the U.S. authorities. If it was me, even the risk of becoming a target of Ervil would have made me think twice. I wasn't terrified because I believed more in getting him behind bars that he can't keep killing everybody than worried about me. And for the cops, Larive's intervention was crucial because getting Delphina safely in custody was one thing. But now they needed her to talk to them too. And Larive was able to help them do that. Why was Delphina such a key witness? She's his first wife and all his kids are hers. And you had to be careful even with her. You couldn't just push and shove, but she ended up telling everything. What Larive means by everything here is, well, the killing of Joel, the killing of Rulin Allred, the killing of Bob Simons and Dean Vest, and on and on. The killing of Rebecca, her daughter. She was the first cult member to give them this inside information. That said, Delphina hadn't actually witnessed any of these murders firsthand. She just heard about them through the family grapevine. For prosecutors to get convictions, the cops were going to need more. See, nobody has all the information. I don't know what you know about law work, but everybody has a little piece. Mm -hmm. And that little piece, and that little piece, and that little piece. And this is where Delphina's son came in, a kid named Isaac. Isaac, just 14 years old in 1977, had actually been at the April 20th meeting that year. The emergency military meeting. The meeting when Ervil ordered the killing of Rulin Allred and Verlin LeBaron and told the cult how he wanted it done. Isaac was a witness. Delphina told this to the cops and she was also able to tell them where Isaac was currently living. On July 13th, 1977, 
The police swooped in for Isaac, descending on an unremarkable-looking single-story suburban home in Dallas. Here, the cult had a safe house. Now, in police custody, at first, Isaac was terrified, refused to say anything to the cops. But over time, they gained his trust, too. And two weeks later, in August 1977, he started to talk. It was really a a key break in the case, and basically at that point, we were on our way. This is David Yoakum, the lead Utah prosecutor. He'd been trying to bring Rulin Allred's killers to justice from the very beginning. As I said, I I attended the the scene at the day of the killing. I had actually been out there where they were wheeling Rulin Allred out of his office on a gurney, and my uh, good friend and detective on the case then informed me they had no idea at the time who was responsible or why he was killed. When he first started on the case, Yoakum thought he'd found his key break in an evidence hall near the crime scene. Two men were looking through a large dumpster outside of their store and found a grocery sack full of things that looked strange to them. It included a gun box, which had a a serial number attached to it. And since the murder had just occurred down the street, they turned over these things to the Murray Police Department. Some of this evidence had sent the investigators in the all-red murder on a bit of a wild goose chase. They traced the serial number on the box through the FBI and found out the box had been purchased in Denver, Colorado. It had been purchased by a cult member who had no further involvement in the killing. And before the cops had insider information from the cult, they thought the gun box link meant they had their shooter. Then they found out she had an airtight alibi. So, they were right back to square one. And David Yoakum was starting to feel the heat. Because what he was learning about Ervil and his cult from the investigation was telling him just how serious stopping this all was. Because of the power that he held over a group of individuals and the authority he claimed and that he could actually command people on his name to murder other people, uh, I felt that it was so significant. And saying this was significant is saying something for Yoakum, who had seen some heavy shit in his career. In fact, just a few years before this case, he had been the first to successfully prosecute serial killer Ted Bundy. You know, Ted Bundy uh, was responsible for a lot of murders, but uh, it wasn't like he headed a whole group of people that he commanded to kill. He was his sole killer, which is bad enough, but here Ervil had the control over people that he could order them to kill members of his own group. He actually had his own daughter murdered, which is pretty damn scary. But um, a very evil person that was worse than, I think, a serial killer. So yeah, from August 77 onwards, when Isaac started giving cops and prosecutors witness statements from the secret meetings of the cult where killings were being ordered, significant probably doesn't cover it. It was a huge break in the case. He started giving information. Uh, we call it the 20th conspiracy meeting, where Ervil conducted a meeting in his group and talked about selecting two women to come to Utah to uh, kill a false prophet. This is an emergency military meeting, April 20th, where the Allred and Verlin murder plans were announced. 
And this young man had a very good memory of that and started giving us names of individuals that were present and who was who. This included a name for the killer of Dr. Rulin Allred, Rena Chinath. Yoakum felt they were ready to make arrests. That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. By the summer of 77, fractures and fissures had begun to appear in Irville's once ultra-tight-knit Church of the Lamb of God. Paranoia and fear, or in some cases, ego, had set in. Lloyd and Don Sullivan, for example, had seen their roles greatly diminish. Lloyd had once held a role near the top of Irville's mafia-like clan. Hearing Rena Chinoth's testimony years later, revealed how he was the instigator for that raid on Los Molinos, carried out the hit on Robert Simons, and had been an advocate for Rebecca's murder too. Yet a series of botched hits meant he'd now lost favor. The disillusionment went both ways. After the Rulin ordered killing in May 1977, Ervil fled south of the border. He had left Lloyd in the U.S. to clean up the mess. This had effectively left Lloyd in charge of the cult's American operations. Lloyd started to spend more and more time with Rena, one of Ervil's hand-picked assassins. And at one time, one of his favorite wives. We were getting familiar with each other. He was telling me how wonderful I was, playing on my emotions. And he was telling me how wrong it was 
things hadn't turned out with Herbal. How much he, how desirable I was and how sad it was that I was so unhappy with Herbal and that it couldn't be right. This is Rena in that interview for her book with the writer Dean Shapiro years later. Here, she's recalling how, after Rulin Allred's murder, Lloyd Sullivan had suddenly started having his own revelations from God. Lloyd was decided he was a prophet and he needed to write. And so he was writing and I was typing for him. Just like for Ervil, Rena was once again typing out the revelations of a self-proclaimed prophet. But that wasn't the only role Lloyd had in mind for her. We were driving along in the truck and he had this revelation where he said, Oh, um, my goodness, I just saw you when you were wearing this long, beautiful, white dress. Mm-hmm. And he goes, of course, a wedding dress. That means you're supposed to marry me. <laughs> this was all very confusing for Rena. Maybe God was in fact revealing to her that she should marry Lloyd, even though God had previously told her she should marry Ervil. So she set off to Mexico, where Ervil was now hiding out, to tell Ervil she was through with him. Ervil's answer? Absolutely not. He told me that Lloyd was worthless and he was this and that. And, oh, I was, I was just, I cried and I was in tears. Rena had hoped to break the news to Ervil and be back in the U.S. within a week. But now that she'd revealed her true intentions, there was no way Ervil was letting her out of his sight. She was his prisoner, now locked away, typing out more insane pamphlets, more unhinged and violent revelations. Their life, ever since the Los Molinos raid, had been nomadic, to stay ahead of enemies real and imagined chasing them. And it continued. Well, traveling, hiding, and running, driving, you know, Stuck down there in Mexico and having money and same old shit. But for Lloyd Sullivan back in the U.S., Rena's absence had done nothing to halt his split from Ervil. He'd already tried to steal Ervil's wife. He'd already called himself the real prophet. Now it was time to go all the way. In August of 1977, he penned an open letter to the Church of the Lamb of God. Why wasn't Ervil over here in the U.S. fighting the good fight, he asked. Why was he hiding out in Mexico? Then he dropped a bomb. He called Ervil a son of perdition, that sinner who could only be atoned by death. This was a call to war. And there were only two ways it could go. Either Ervil would take out Lloyd, or Lloyd would have to find a way of getting to Ervil. In the meantime, prosecutors against Ervil had continued to build their case. And on September 15, 1977, Yoakum's team filed charges for murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder against all of Ervil's inner circle. Roughly two weeks later, Homes and businesses controlled by the cult were raided by one of the largest joint law enforcement operations in the history of the American West. A massive sting operation. Over 100 police officers from Utah, Texas, Colorado, and Oklahoma. 
they were assisted by agents from the FBI and the Secret Service. The raid wasn't a total success. Many of the cult, including Ervil and Rena, remained at large. But they did manage to catch at least one big fish. This is an interview conducted in the county attorney's office in Salt Lake City. Present county attorney investigator Dick Forbes. Interview will be conducted by National City PD. The cops had caught Lloyd Sullivan. Uh, I'd like to start out the interview by getting just a little bit of background. I understand that uh, you're affiliated with, uh, or were affiliated with the Church of the Lamb of God. Is that correct? I have been affiliated with what was called the Church of the Lamb of God, yes. What was your uh, position in the church at that time? You say you're, uh... At that time, I was studying with Herbal to uh, teach the uh, commandments of the Lord. Saying he's, he's, he teaches very, very well, better than any man I've ever heard. And I was learning under him. At this point, Lloyd was already looking for ways to eliminate Ervil as a rival. And now he realized the police could help him do it. So Lloyd started talking to the cops. He gave them the inside line on many of the cult's murders, from the killing of Joel, the raid on Los Molinos, and other killings, like the murder of Ervil's daughter, Rebecca. Having a knowledge and being intimate with people in that group were most of them prone to follow out commandments without question. Yes, uh, of that magnitude, yes. Thus saith the Lord, you do this, no hesitation. Have you heard Ervil give other people similar commandments? Yes, he's given them to me. And did you have that same feeling about it, that it was in fact God's commandment? I did. What would happen if you failed to carry out that type of commandment? Death. For who? Uh, whoever was commanded and refused. Was there any question about that in your mind, that if you refused to carry out a commandment, that you would be killed? Never. With Lloyd Sullivan giving them information, Forbes and Yoakum now had a network of informants. Together with people in Colonial Abaran, like Larive Stubbs, their intelligence on the Church of the Lamb of God was growing. How they operated, how they thought, who was currently in favor. But also, crucially, the location of the remaining fugitive cult members who had so far eluded arrest. In the early morning hours of October 31st, 1978, in a rural part of Mexico, not far from Mexico City, Federales closed in on an apartment complex. Inside were Rina Chinoth, Ervil LeBaron, some of Ervil's other wives, Dan Jordan, his right-hand man, and other remaining members of Ervil's inner circle, all hiding out together. Rena had been typing yet another pamphlet till late into the night and had fallen asleep on a blanket on the floor of one of the bedrooms. At one in the morning, without warning, Federales crashed through the door. Yeah, they had automatic machine guns pointed at us, and there must have been five or six of them. And I don't, can't remember if they weren't wearing 
army fatigues or anything. They were wearing street clothes. Mm. Then they came roaring into the bedroom. This is Rena in that interview with writer Dean Shapiro. At this point in the fall of 78, Rena had already had one child with Herbal. Rena was now three months pregnant with their second child. I said, well, can I put some clothes on or something here? And the guy said, well, okay, let us go in the bathroom. We have to stand with the door open. And so I, I got some clothes on, and they took me out and handcuffed me, my hands behind my back, and they put me in this van outside and left me there all night. Sitting in the van, her hands cuffed and her feet tied, Rena looked for Ervil, expecting to see him being led away in handcuffs too. But instead, as she looked out into the darkness, she saw the Federales leading out Dan Jordan. They brought Dan Jordan out and put him in the van. They looked at him and at Herbal's picture, and for some reason, they decided that he was Herbal, and they don't look anything alike. <laughs> the cops had, in fact, questioned Herbal that night, but he had played innocent, said he was just some minor follower of the Church of the Lamb of God and the Federales didn't recognize him. It was when they'd found Dan Jordan that they thought they had their main man. So they thought they were arresting Herbal. So they thought they had Herbal, and Dan didn't argue with them. Cops blindfolded both Rena and Dan and took them to a prison in the Mexican capital. And uh, when we got to Mexico City, I laughed at Sergeant Lightness face, and they were trying to interview him. You had him right in your grasp, and you didn't even know it, so you had him go, so that was supposed to prove uh-huh. You know, I felt like it just goes to prove that we're right and they're wrong because mm. God saw that he should escape. After Mexico City, the cops eventually handed Rena over to American law enforcement. They put us in the back of a car and they drove us to the border. It took like two days, all day and all night. And we drove and drove and drove. Yeah, quite a trip. Yeah. And they took us to the border in Laredo. I try to picture Rena there, standing at the border, a river running free in front of her, about to cross from one life of captivity to another. Free of Ervil, something she had dreamed of since he started to pursue her when she was just 12 years old. She had at times prayed God would strike her by lightning to end this nightmare. And now, miraculously, as she walked across the bridge, leading from Mexico to Laredo, Texas, God had answered her prayers. Rena was free from the lambs of God, but headed to jail. The FBI today arrested a key suspect in the 1977 religious assassination of polygamist patriarch Rulin Allred. Agents arrested 20-year-old Rena Shanoth at the International Bridge in Laredo, Texas. Shanoth is charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to murder in the Allred case. Authorities have described the killing as a religious assassination ordered by the fanatic Ervil LeBaron, the leader of a rival polygamous cult. Ten people have been charged in the case. Most of the gang had now been caught. Detectives were now interrogating them, building a case for trial. LeBaron himself and one of his sons remain at large. The FBI said Shanoth would appear at a federal removal hearing in Texas Monday and then be returned to Utah for prosecution. And surely it was just a matter of time before they caught Ervil himself. And when they did, the killing would stop. That was the hope anyway. 
more after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The trial of Rena Chinoth and other accomplice members of the Church of the Lamb of God began in a Salt Lake City courtroom on Tuesday, March 6, 1979. David Yoakum, the man tasked with prosecuting the cult, he feared the trial was going to play out as an internal face-off between cult members. There was a battle there between the group and blaming one another, you know, which group of people were responsible here. Rulin Allred's daughter, Dorothy, took her place in the courtroom. There was a great deal of angry energy emanating from Ervil's people who attended the trial. There was just a lot of angry energy. Rena and the others had refused any kind of plea deal. As she told the writer of her memoir years later, at this point, she was all in on a not guilty verdict. I think when they when it was mentioned to me, I said no. You wanted it to go to a jury. Now we did this in God's name, and God darn well better get us out of this. If you've ever sat in a courtroom during a trial, it can be surprising how mundane the proceedings are. Even murder trials are sometimes boring once the legal arguments are underway. This is why little things can make a big difference. Little things that cut through to make an impression on jurors. Sometimes as much as facts, things that give them positive feelings about those called to speak. And the problem for prosecutor David Yoakum was that not many of his witnesses in the trial were likely to cut through 
in a particularly positive way, they weren't exactly sympathetic, especially Don Sullivan. People who were on trial were pointing their fingers at Don Sullivan, and you know they were the supposed ringleaders of the whole thing, and that uh, Rena had nothing to do with it. Don Sullivan, who had come across with his dad Lloyd to cooperate with the cops, he had earlier pleaded guilty to conspiracy and agreed to testify in exchange for immunity from further prosecution. So this was a self-confessed conspirator to murder. To jurors, he probably seemed like a psychopath. On top of that, he'd been indoctrinated to lie for years. So again, not exactly a credible witness. And Rena's defense team were saying Don was the one responsible. This was the internal face-off between cult members Yoakum was concerned about. And that kind of he-said-she-said said, reasonable doubt wasn't the only issue the prosecution faced. All the publicity surrounding Herbal LeBaron, the local TV news coverage, the articles in newspapers and magazines, well, it had created a picture of the cult that was terrifying. In January 1979, for example, the National Enquirer had run a front page with Herbal's mugshot, blaming him and his cult for the assassination of JFK. He had that kind of notoriety now. And that freaked jurors out. There was a feeling that uh, during the case that some of the jurors were actually concerned for their health and welfare because they were afraid that if they brought back a guilty verdict that Irville's group and Irville being out free, running around and still having a following, uh, that they may be harmed if they found any member of the group guilty. The Mormon Manson who could control killers with his mind, he seemed capable of anything. Which is why, to this day, Yoakum is both grateful and inspired at the courage of people like Irville's son Isaac agreeing to take the witness stand. And Yoakum had impartial witnesses too. Like the woman who had sold Rena a disguise shortly before the killing of Rulin Allred, she remembered selling it to Rena, remembered her well. That was kind of an ominous feeling to have somebody come up there and say you've been in this store and that she'd never forget that face. And she remembered how happy and I was and that face just kind of shone or something like that. It's beautiful. But other witnesses were less helpful to the prosecution, like one who was at the crime scene but couldn't pick Rena out of a photo lineup. They had that composite picture that that guy in the waiting room was hypnotized and he gave it composite mm-hmm. and it looked more like Don Sullivan than me. <laughs> and my attorney had fun with that. So this is the thing. This is who you said it was under hypnosis. It doesn't look anything like my client. Mm-hmm. If anything, it looks like a man. Yeah. And that's what they were stressing is that it could have been a man dressed up as women mm-hmm. and most likely could have been the state's witness. Perhaps witnesses like this one explain why David Yoakum felt like he needed to close his argument with some kind of grand flourish. Or perhaps that was always going to be his style. My closing arguments always were quite strong. I was accused many, many times of unethical conduct and in cases, I'd go right up to the wall, I'd say, uh, but not stepping over the line. And 
that I just pushed my cases to the brink. Either way, when David Yoakum strode towards the judge and slammed a copy of the Bible onto the table in front of him, both jury members and even the defendant were a little taken aback. I just remember Yoakum picking up that Bible and slamming it back down. On the judge's bench? On the table in front of the judge's bench where Mm -hmm. they had the exhibits. And I thought that was kind of shocking. I don't know. Imagine everybody else. I can only imagine what everybody else felt when he did that. And he was very cocky. David Yoakum wasn't worried about shocking people. That was the point. So the jury would wake up to the threat posed by Ervil's cult. Bring them to justice. And he felt the cops and prosecutors had made their case. Now it was up to the jury to find Rena Chinoth and her accomplices guilty of killing Rulin Allred. Even though we didn't have a solid eyewitness testimony that she was the one that pulled the trigger, I was pretty confident that we had sufficient evidence to convict Rena. The really felt that we had a good case. Just four hours later, the jury of six women and two men were filing back into the courtroom with a verdict. And I said the verdict was in. When I got back to the courtroom, my attorney was there, and he was concerned because normally when the jury reaches a verdict that quickly, it's usually a guilty verdict. Rena sat alongside her lawyer, a guy named John McConnell. And I was squeezing John's hand so hard I could hardly... I imagine his blood would stop. Mm. <laughs> it was not circulating too well for that. Mm. And uh, we all sat there, and the bailiff, or whoever it is, handed it to the bailiff, and he takes it to the judge, and the judge reads the verdict, and then he looked up and he said, now I, I'll have no outbursts from the crowd. I'll not tolerate any outbursts or something like that. And uh, then when they began reading the verdicts. Gradually, I let off on his hand. <laughs> let off squeezing on his hand. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. On whatever, 23 accounts. Just 18 days after the trial had begun, not only was Rena cleared of all charges, but all remaining lambs of God being held for the murder of Rulin Allred were cleared of charges in relation to his murder, too. Rena was free. Well, uh, we hugged all the way around, and I don't know what the crowd's reaction was. I I was too involved. Rena is sent back to her cell to gather up her personal belongings and say goodbye to the friends she's made. She's then processed out to meet family members who are waiting outside. I remember walking out from this underground tunnel, and there were cameras there. Press was waiting, and I couldn't believe. Actually, I was just in a daze. I think I was in a daze most of the time. <laughs> like, I just remember I was in the car, and I was looking up at the mountains, looking around at the lights, and here's the world. I've been locked up for so long. And those beautiful mountains there in Salt Lake, snow on, on the top of them. It was, it was fresh air. Rena is free to put her whole past behind her or to go and write a book about it and tour the U.S. cable news networks for the next decade. Either way, when it came to the cult, she was out. 
leaving behind her the stunned cops and prosecutors like Yoakum. I didn't cry or anything, but I was really disappointed. And all of the prosecution team were, were disappointed in the verdict. What would it take to get a conviction against Herbal LeBaron? Was God really on his side protecting him? Well, no. I knew one thing that would make me feel less hurt is to apprehend and capture and try Earl, which, of course, we got that chance. That's coming up in the next episode of Deliver Us from Earl. Deliver Us from Herbal is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters, Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gongora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Michael Lee Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Chris O'Shaughnessy. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.